Section 70 of A Popular History of France, Volume 5. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 5, by François Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 48. Louis Fourteenth, Literature and Art, Part 5. From the solitude of that closet went forth a book unique of its sort, full of sagacity, penetration, and severity, without bitterness, a picture of the manners of the court and of the world, traced by the hand of a spectator who had not essayed its temptations, but who guessed them and passed judgment on them all, quote, a book, as M. de Malézieux said to La Bruyère, which was sure to bring its author many readers and many enemies, end quote. Its success was great from the first, and it excited lively curiosity. The courtiers liked the portraits, the attempts were made to name them, the good sense, shrewdness, and truth of the observation struck everybody. People had met a hundred times those whom La Bruyère had described. The form appeared of a rarer order than even the matter. It was a brilliant, uncommon style, as varied as human nature, always elegant and pure, original and animated, rising sometimes to the height of the noblest thoughts, gay and grave, pointed and serious avoiding by richness in turns and expression the uniformity native to the subject la bruyere riveted attention by a succession of touches making a masterly picture a terrible one sometimes as in his description of the peasant's misery Quote, to be seen are certain ferocious animals male and female scattered over the country dark livid and all scorched by the sun affixed to the soil which they rummage and throw up with indomitable pertinacity they have a sort of articulate voice and when they rise to their feet they show a human face. They are, in fact, men. At night they withdraw to the caves, where they live on black bread, water, and roots. They spare other men the trouble of sowing, tilling, and reaping for their livelihood, and deserve, therefore, not to go in want of the very bread they have sown." Few people at the court, and in La Bruyère's day, would have thought about the sufferings of the country folks, and conceived the idea of contrasting them with a sketch of a court ninny. Quote, gold glitters say you upon the clothes of philemon it glitters as well as the tradesman's he is dressed in the finest stuffs are they a whit the less so when displayed in the shops and by the piece nay but the embroidery and the ornaments add magnificence thereto then i give the workman credit for his work if you ask him the time he pulls out a watch which is a masterpiece his sword-guard is an onyx he has on his finger a large diamond which he flashes into all eyes and which is perfection he lacks none of those curious trifles which are worn about one as much for show as for use, and he does not stint himself either of all sorts of adornment befitting a young man who has married an old millionaire. You really pique my curiosity. I positively must see such precious articles as those. Send me that coat and those jewels of Philemon's. You can keep the person. Thou art wrong, Philemon, if with that splendid carriage and that large number of rascals behind thee, and those six animals to draw thee, thou thinkest thou art thought more of we take off all those appendages which are extraneous to thee to get at thyself who are but a ninny more earnest and less bitter than la rochefoucauld and as brilliant and as firm as cardinal de retz la bruyere was a more sincere believer than either quote, i feel that there is a god and i do not feel that there is none that is enough for me the reasoning of the world is useless to me i conclude that god exists are men good enough faithful enough equitable enough to deserve all our confidence and not make us wish at least for the existence of god to whom we may appeal from their judgments and have recourse when we are persecuted or betrayed 
a very strong reason and of potent logic, naturally imprinted upon an upright spirit in a sensible mind, irresistibly convinced, both of them, that justice alone can govern the world. La Bruyère had just been admitted into the French Academy, in 1693. In his admission speech he spoke in praise of the living, Bossuet, Fenelon, Racine, La Fontaine. It was not as yet the practice. Those who were not praised felt angry, and the journals of the time bitterly attacked the new academician. He was hurt, and withdrew almost entirely from the world. Four days before his death, however, quote, he was in company. All at once he perceived that he was becoming deaf, yes, stone deaf. He returned to Versailles, where he had apartments at Condé's house. Apoplexy carried him off in a quarter of an hour on the 11th of May, 1696, leaving behind him an incomparable book, wherein, according to his own maxim, the excellent writer shows himself to be an excellent painter, and four dialogues against quietism, still unfinished, full of lively and good-humoured hostility to the doctrines of Madame Guyon. They were published after his death. We pass from prose to poetry, from La Bruyère to Corneille, who had died in 1684, too late for his fame, in spite of the vigorous returns of genius which still flash forth sometimes in his feeblest works. Throughout the Regency and the Fronde, Corneille had continued to occupy almost alone the great French stage. Rotrou, his sometime rival with his piece of Wenceslas, and ever tenderly attached to him, had died in 1650, at Dreux, of which he was civil magistrate. An epidemic was ravaging the town, and he was urged to go away. Quote, I am the only one who can maintain good order, and I shall remain, he replied. At the moment of my writing to you, the bells are tolling for the twenty-second person to-day. Perhaps to-morrow it will be for me, but my conscience has marked out my duty. God's will be done. End quote. Two days later he was dead. Corneille had dedicated Polyeucht to the regent Anne of Austria. He published in a single year Rodogune and Mort de Pompée, dedicating this latter piece to Mazarin, in gratitude, he said, for an act of generosity with which his eminence had surprised him. At the same time he borrowed from the Spanish drama the canvas of the Menteur, the first really French comedy which appeared on the boards, and which Molière showed that he could appreciate at its proper value. After this attempt, due perhaps to the desire felt by Corneille to triumph over his rivals, in the style in which he had walked abreast with them, he let tragedy resume its legitimate empire over a genius formed by it. He wrote Heraclius and Nicomide, which are equal in parts to his finest masterpieces. But by this time the great genius no longer soared with equal flight. Theodore and Pertherite had been failures. Quote, I don't mention them, Corneille would say, in order to avoid the vexation of remembering them. End quote. He was still living at Rouen, in a house adjoining that occupied by his brother, Thomas Corneille, younger than he, already known by some comedies which had met with success. The two brothers had married two sisters. Quote, their houses twain were made in one, with keys and purse the same was done. Their wives can never have been two, their wishes tallied at all times. No games distinct their children knew. The fathers lent each other rhymes, same wine for both the drawers drew. End quote. Ducis. It is said that when Peter Corneille was puzzled to end a verse he would undo a trap that opened into his brother's room, shouting, quote, Sans souci, a rhyme. End quote. Corneille had announced his renunciation of the stage. He was translating into verse the imitation of Christ. Quote, it were better, he had written in his preface to Pertherite, that I took leave myself instead of waiting till it is taken of me altogether. It is quite right that after twenty years' work I should begin to perceive that I am becoming too old to be still in the fashion. This resolution is not so strong but that it may be broken. There is every appearance, however, of my abiding by it. Fouquet was then in his glory, quote, no less superintendent of literature than of finance, end quote, 
and he undertook to recall to the stage the genius of Corneille. At his voice, the poet and the tragedian rose up at a single bound. Quote, I feel the self-same fire, the self-same nerve I feel, that roused the indignant Cid, drove home Horatius's steel. As cunning as of yore this hand of mine I find, that sketched great Pompey's soul, depicted Cinna's mind, wrote Corneille in his thanks to Fouquet. He had some months before said to Mademoiselle Dupart, who was an actress in Molière's company, which had come to Rouen, and who was, from her grand airs, nicknamed by the others the Marchioness, quote, Marchioness, if age hath set on my brow his ugly dye, at my years, pray don't forget, you will be as old as I. Yet do I possess of charms one or two, so slow to fade, that I feel but scant alarms at the havoc time hath made." You have such as men adore, but these that you scorn to-day may perchance be to the fore when your own are worn away. These can from decay reprieve eyes I take a fancy to. Make a thousand years believe whatsoe'er I please of you. With that new, that coming race, who will take my word for it, all the warrant for your face will be what I may have writ. Corneille reappeared upon the boards with a tragedy called Epide, more admired by his contemporaries than by posterity. On the occasion of Louis the Fourteenth's marriage, he wrote for the king's comedians the Toisson d'Or, and put into the mouth of France those prophetic words, quote, My natural force abates from long success alone. Triumphant blooms the state, the wretched people groan, their shrunken bodies bend beneath my high emprise. Whilst glory gilds the throne, the subject sinks and dies. Sertorius appeared at the commencement of the year 1662. Quote, Pray where did Corneille learn politics and war? asked Turenne when he saw this piece played. Quote, you are the true and faithful interpreter of the mind and courage of Rome, Balzac wrote to him. Quote, I say further, sir, you are often her teacher, and the reformer of olden times, if they have need of embellishment and support. In the spots where Rome is of brick, you rebuild it of marble. Where you find a gap, you fill it with a masterpiece, and I take it that what you lend to history is always better than what you borrow from it. Quote, they are grander and more Roman in his verses than in their history, said La Bruyere. Once only, in the Cid, Corneille had abandoned himself unreservedly to the reality of passion. Scared at what he might find in the weaknesses of the heart, he would no longer see aught but its strength. He sought in man that which resists and not that which yields, thus giving his times the sublime pleasure of an enjoyment that can belong to naught but the human soul, a cherished proof of its noble origin and its glorious destiny the pleasure of admiration, the appreciation of the beautiful and the great, the enthusiasm aroused by virtue. He moves us at sight of a masterpiece, thrills us at the sound of a noble deed, enchants us at the bare idea of a virtue which three thousand years have forever separated from us. Corneille et son temps, by M. Guizot. Every other thought, every other prepossession, are strangers to the poet. His personages represent heroic passions which they follow out without swerving, and without suffering themselves to be shackled by the notions of a morality which is still far from fixed, and often in conflict with the interests and obligations of parties, thus remaining perfectly of his own time and his own country, all the while that he is describing Greeks or Romans or Spaniards. There is no pleasure in tracing the decadence of a great genius. Corneille wrote for a long while without success, attributing his repeated rebuffs to his old age, the influence of fashion, the capricious taste of the generation for young people. He thought himself neglected, appealing to the king himself who had ordered Cinna and Pompey to be played at court. Quote, Go on. The latest born have not degenerate. Not have they which would stamp them illegitimate. They, miserable fate, were smothered at the birth, and one kind glance of yours would bring them back to earth. The people and the court, I grant you, cry them down. 
I have, or else they think I have, too feeble grown. I've written far too long to write so well again. The wrinkles on the brow reach even to the brain. But counter to this vote, how many could I raise, if to my latest works you should vouchsafe your praise? How soon so kind a grace, so potent to constrain, would court and people both win back to me again? So Sophocles of yore at Athens was the rage, so boiled his ancient blood at five-score years of age. Would they to envy cry, when Oedipus at bay before his judges stood, and bore the votes away? Posterity has done for Corneille more than Louis Fourteenth could have done. It has left in oblivion Agesilus, Attila, Titus, and Pulcherie. It preserved the memory of the triumphs only. The poet was accustomed to say with a smile when he was reproached with his slowness and emptiness in conversation, quote, I am Peter Corneille all the same. End quote. The world has passed similar judgment on his works. In spite of the rebuffs of his latter years, he has remained quote, the great Corneille. End quote. When he died in 1684, Racine, elected by the Academy in 1673, found himself on the point of becoming its director. He claimed the honor of presiding at the obsequies of Corneille. The latter had not been admitted to the body until 1641, after having undergone two rebuffs. Corneille had died in the night. The Academy decided in favor of Abbé de Laveau, the outgoing director, quote, "'Nobody but you could pretend to bury Corneille,' said Ben Serrade to Racine, "'yet you have not been able to obtain the chance.'" It was only when he received into the Academy Thomas Corneille, in his brother's place, that Racine could praise to his heart's content the master and rival who in old age had done him the honor to dread him. Quote, "'My father had not been happy in his speech at his own admission,' says Louis Racine ingenuously. He was in this because he spoke out of the abundance of his heart, being inwardly convinced that Corneille was worth much more than he. Louis XIV had come in for as great a share as Corneille in Racine's praises. He, informed of the success of the speech, desired to hear it. The author had the honor of reading it to him, after which the king said to him, quote, I am very pleased. I would praise you more if you had praised me less. It was on this occasion that the great Arnaud, still in disgrace and carefully concealed, wrote to Racine, quote, I have to thank you, sir, for the speech which was sent me from you. There certainly was never anything so eloquent, and the hero whom you praise is so much the more worthy of your praises, in that he considered them too great. I have many things that I would say to you about that, if I had the pleasure of seeing you, but it would need the dispersal of a cloud which I dare to say is a spot upon this sun. I assure you that the ideas I have thereupon are not interested, and that what may concern myself affects me very little. A chat with you and your companion would give me much pleasure, but I would not purchase that pleasure by the least poltroonery. You know what I mean by that, and so I abide in peace and wait patiently for God to make known to this perfect prince that he has not in his kingdom a subject more loyal, more zealous for his true glory, and if I dare say so, loving him with a love more pure and more free from all interest. That is why I should not bring myself to take a single step to obtain liberty to see my friends, unless it were to my prince alone that I could be indebted for it." Fenelon and the great Arnaud held the same language, independent and submissive, proud and modest at the same time. Only their conscience spoke louder than their respect for the king. At the time when Racine was thus praising at the Academy the king and the great Corneille, his own dramatic career was already ended. He was born, in 1639, at La Ferté-Milan. He had made his first appearance on the stage in 1664 with the Frères Ennemis, and had taken leave of it in 1673 with Phèdre, Esther and Nathalie, played in 1689 and 1691 by the young ladies of Saint-Cyr, were not regarded by their author and his austere friends as any derogation from the pious engagements he had entered into. Racine, left an orphan at four years of age, 
and brought up at Port Royal under the influence and the personal care of M. Le Maître, who called him his son, did not at first answer the expectations of his master. The glowing fancy of which he already gave signs caused dismay to Lancelot, who threw into the fire one after the other two copies of the Greek tale Théenne et Chariclée, which the young man was reading. The third time the latter learnt it off by heart, and taking the book to his severe censor, quote, Here, said he, you can burn this volume too, as well as the others. End quote. Racine's pious friends had fine work to no purpose. Nature carried the day, and he wrote verses. Quote, Being unable to consult you, I was prepared, like Malherbe, to consult an old servant at our place, he wrote to one of his friends, if I had not discovered that she was a Jansenist like her master, and that she might betray me, which would be my utter ruin, considering that I receive every day letter upon letter, or rather excommunication upon excommunication, all because of a poor sonnet. End quote. To deter the young man from poetry, he was led to expect a benefice, and was sent away to Uze to his uncle's, Father Sconet, who set him to study theology. Quote, I pass my time with my uncle, St. Thomas, and Virgil, he wrote on the 17th of January, 1662, to M. Vitard, steward to the Duke of Luynes. I make lots of extracts from theology and some from poetry. My uncle has kind intentions towards me. He hopes to get me something. Then I shall try to pay my debts. I do not forget the obligations I am under to you. I blush as I write. Erubuit puer, salva rest est, or the lad has blushed. It is all right but that conclusion is all wrong, my affairs do not mend." Racine had composed at Uze the Frère Ennemi, which was played on his return to Paris in 1664, not without a certain success. Alexandre met with a great deal in 1665. The author had at first entrusted it to Molière's company, but he was not satisfied and gave his piece to the comedians of the Hôtel de Dorgogne. Molière was displeased and quarrelled with Racine, towards whom he had up to that time testified much good will. The disagreement was not destined to disturb the equity of their judgments upon one another. When Racine brought out Les Plaideurs, which was not successful at first, Molière, as he left, said out loud, quote, The comedy is excellent, and they who deride it deserve to be derided. End quote. One of Racine's friends, thinking to do him a pleasure, went to him in all haste to tell him of the failure of the misanthrope at its first representation. Quote, the piece has fallen flat, said he. Never was there anything so dull. You can believe what I say, for I was there. Quote, you were there, and I was not, replied Racine, and yet I do not believe it, because it is impossible that Molière should have written a bad piece. Go again and pay more attention to it. End, End of section 70